0: Welcome to the Prosperity Agenda's TPA Voices podcast. We're going to take you through a series of discussions and shared research that explore how we need to change our mindsets about poverty and build better programs for families under financial stress. At the Prosperity Agenda, we're working to end persistent poverty by improving programs, designing tools and sharing methods that reflect the idea that all people are capable of making decisions for themselves and their families. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, my name is Diana Dollar, and I'm the Executive Director at the Prosperity Agenda. Today we're talking to a special guest, Michelle Gieslason, about the link between race and power of white women in nonprofit leadership. Michelle's a leadership and organizational development coach who specializes in nonprofit organizations. She's also a co-author of the award-winning book, Coaching Skills for Nonprofit Managers and Leaders. Welcome, Michelle.
1: Hi, Diana.
0: It's really lovely to be here. Well, we're uh, we're happy to have you, and we're talking about something that I know you've spent considerable time uh, learning yourself, and this context of race and power of white women in leadership, nonprofit leadership, more specifically. You've you've actually pegged a term, or you I should say that you've uh, you've been referencing a term that I think is a good way to sort of get get us thinking about or starting us uh, off in terms of talking about this topic, and that is this term of smog of racism and its connection to power and authority of whiteness. So I thought it might be helpful uh, for us to start with what is this term smog of racism and how does that connect to your own story?
1: Sure. Well, first, it's, it's definitely not my term. It's Beverly Daniel Tatum's turn term. Um, so I wanna I wanna acknowledge that, and I'll share my own personal story. Um, last year, I traveled to Idaho for this national gathering of movement leaders, and at the time, I don't know if you remember, but Idaho was surrounded on three sides of the state by wildfires: Canada, Montana, and Eastern Washington. Because you know, climate change <laughs> is happening. Um, And the fires made the air really heavy with ash and pollution. And as I was flying into Boise, I found it was really hard for me to breathe. Um, And I was, as I was driving to the hotel, everybody I talked to just couldn't help but comment on it, how they couldn't avoid it, and the pollution levels were really high, and it was considered unhealthy to be outside, and it was interfering, you know, just with people's daily lives. Um, And this was kind of unavoidable, It it was oppressive, that was the feeling. And at the same time, I was feeling heavy with this different kind of smog, and it's the one that Beverly Daniel Tatum talks about, where she equates smog to racism. And so, you know, in in Charlottesville and other parts of the country, there's this thick and really heavy and similar smog that's descended, and that is this, like, capital R racism, capital W white nationalism, which is everywhere, Um, and that, smog, you, know, you can't avoid it, and, it, and it, it, it's so thick that you can actually see it in front of you. But there's this different kind of smog. There's this, like, lowercase S smog, um, and it can still be there, and it's actually really insidious. And, you know, for me, my personal smog that I was born into was things like growing up in a predominantly white community, um, having teachers that were the same race as I was, you know, Robin D'Angelo, has this great quote, I was taught by white people who were taught by white people who were taught by white people with textbooks written by white people, you know, and then images that, you know, I grew up seeing on the covers of magazines, beauty magazines, you know, mostly white, blonde women, and characters in TV or films and literature were predominantly white, the sexual characters. Um, Even in my master's program in English literature, it was English literature, so it was like mostly white guys. (laughs) Um, So, you know, all of that, you know, when I take that all in, all these small and big ways, um, it is this, uh, it's this certain kind of smog, Um, you know, who I had as supervisors in my career, politicians that I see who have access to power, still predominantly white. Um, So when you put all these experiences together, there is this very insidious system Um, It goes way back to like the 1700s and the founding of this country that, you know, when it was founded, it really only technically counted white people as people. So the smog that I was born into and I've been breathing in every day has left me with this very real sense of white skin racial superiority. And I think that that's important because this learned sense of racial superiority is really what white supremacy is. Um, so I'll, I'll
0: stop there, I can say more. Yeah. That's, that's the piece I would definitely want to land. Well, and that's, um, I, w- I want to definitely dive a little deeper into uh, this idea of smog of racism which shows up in the white dominant culture. And it does so, you've talked about in, in particular ways, and people that you have, um, colleagues and, and others that you've been learning also what this smog of racism, racism is about that translates into particular habits uh, that affect how we function in our organization, such as you talk about perfectionism, performance, uh, this idea of right to comfort, which I find really, I I noticed it within myself actually, once really realizing it, that there's a, a discomfort of not wanting to talk about racism in some levels uh, that even though I think I'm a very open-minded individual there is a certain level where I don't want to go uh, as a mm-hmm. leader in a nonprofit and so I, I would love for you to talk about what these habits that are so important for us to understand and especially when it comes to addressing racial equity or really looking at white superiority in nonprofit organizations. Yeah, uh,
1: well and huge shout out to Tima Okan and DR Work too that they Uh, are the folks that I first learned about all these habits of white supremacy culture from. Um, And and culture, you know, when we even think about culture, like culture is the way that we do things here, right? Like it's just the way it is. (laughs) And habits are a really big part of that. And, you know, habits are like these things that we do automatically without even thinking about it. It's not very intentional at all, even if we think we have good intentions. And so, again, kind of bringing it back to my own story and how the smog and the habit showed up for me organization as a positional leader you know I worked for years and years for a big nonprofit organization I was managing a huge multi-year multi-million dollar leadership initiative for this nonprofit and it was super high pressure this project but I got a lot of ego strokes from the funder for our team bringing an a game that was like the term they use a game It was like getting a little gold star mm-hmm. and we hired a woman of color who I knew from the community she was a total rock star I really liked her a lot and she came onto this project and right out of the gate started to miss deadlines or turn things in that had errors. And I got nervous. It didn't really, it did, this wasn't working for my A game, <laughs> you know. Um, and I started to do things. Like, first I started to do her work for her. Then I started not giving her stuff or giving her work. Then I started avoiding her or leaving her out of key conversations and meetings with the team. And all that stuff that I was doing was this, like, classic form of modern oppression stuff. It was things like doing her work for her, which is dysfunctional rescuing, blaming her, avoiding contact, like, all that stuff. That, all that is because of these habits. I was, you know, really playing into most of the ones that you named, like, a-game, It's all about perfection, right? It's getting it all right, yeah. doing it exactly right. It's all about performance and how I'm going to be seen or how's the team or the project going to be seen. Um, avoiding conflict, instead of me just talking to her and saying, hey, here's what's up, you know, how's this for you, I was avoiding the conversation. I was playing into the habit of urgency. I was playing into the habit of power hoarding. And then even when I got called in by a colleague who's like, hey, I'm seeing you doing some stuff, I did even more habits like defensiveness and the right to comfort that you mentioned, which Mm -hmm. is basically like, I don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable in this. I don't want to be, I don't want to be forced to look at, you know, my own stuff (laughs) that's coming up. I don't want to have this wildly uncomfortable conversation that might have something to do with race or my own internalized racial superiority. So it's just really interesting the way that it plays out, and that's just at the interpersonal level because I I think it's important also to recognize that as somebody who is overseeing this project, like, I was a gatekeeper, and a gatekeeper is somebody who is granted the ability to make decisions for, distribute resources, or interpret on behalf of others or on on behalf of other people or a community, and so as a gatekeeper, um, I can not only... Uh, bring these habits to bear in interpersonal situations, but I can do it at an institutional level, at a programmatic level, and that can do a lot of harm. So I think it's important for all of us that hold gatekeeping roles to be really mindful. And that gatekeeping term is, I learned about that term from the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, the uh, work that we're involved in, and, and I just, just knowing nationally so much attention being paid in the nonprofit realm, and, and for profit as well, but in the nonprofit uh, space, that attention being paid to racial equity and really trying to create more, uh, just a different future for the way that nonprofits are doing their work today. and. And I would just say that as an organization, uh, our organization being largely white as well, that there's, there is there uh, is an, an acknowledgement. Like most people, will it will will say that it's not about color, or it's not it's not about uh, bringing people in. Like for example, in hiring, that there's been a a real pressure to have not just our own organization, but ones that we work with, that that the hiring process, that there is attention being paid to how we think about hiring people. And yet, there's something a little bit different from what I'm hearing, The this idea of habits, which is, mm-hmm. I don't think we talk about the habits enough. And, and in right. particular, I don't think we talk about it with respect to white women, because I do think that yeah. we play a different role in the way that organizations are led because we, we bring to the table different uh, perspectives in terms of how to manage people. And I think we get, um, maybe it's just my perspective, a little bit associated with uh, f- more female characteristics that are not as harsh as maybe as men. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily, I, I wonder from your perspective, you know, why it's important for us to call out white women in leadership Uh, in in this work and talking about habits and especially in this context of the the white dominant uh, or the dominant white culture that exists in organizations so I don't know just unpack that a little bit and and sort of thinking of it in the context of women white women in particular with respect to these habits in organizations and nonprofit organizations
1: well first I want to acknowledge that you know there's um, you know, the gender spectrum of fluidity, so, like, naming women only might not resonate for everybody, and at the same time, you're right on in saying, like, in the nonprofit sector, this is a predominantly white female sector, and in the United States, white women comprise over 80% of employees uh, in nonprofits of all kinds, um, as opposed to 7% of, like, CEOs and EDs are people of color. Five percent of philanthropic organizations are led by people of color. So, just so the numbers are way off. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and there's a dominant narrative, I think, that we white women have in the nonprofit sector that's really born out of the helping nature of the work. And my colleague, Fleur Larson, she and I uh, do some, some work together, some facilitation. She's got this great image that she brings into the trainings of a woman from the Red Cross like an old, you know, old historic image, and she asks people to name what they see, and the things they see are like martyr, savior, purity, charity, Christianity, like all these things from a very privileged mythical norm story, um, and and you know when you put all that together, there's this like helping story this uh, charity kind of martyr, savior, white savior story, and that's really dangerous, <laughs> um, you know, because if I already have internalized racial superiority because of all the smog, and I believe that I'm helping others, I'm automatically putting them into an inferior place. You know, helping, it becomes just like, it's not a relationship between e- equals, it's more like power over instead of power with, and that's a very paternalistic approach. So your earlier point about like we you know we're a white dominant organization and yes we want to hire people of color yes we do and that can be very tokenizing mm-hmm. it's, a te- it's a technical fix like oh we need to be more diverse let's just hire more people of color well what's happening when we when they get here right into this white dominant organization where everybody's been you know breathing in the smog of racism including people of color of internalized uh, um, racial inferiority Like, that creates all sorts of bizarre practices uh, or or habits and, um, you know, and things that that people are going to play out in the organization. So, yeah, I think think the technical fix stuff is let's just hire for diversity and the real adaptive work, the stuff that's going to require behavior change, it's going to make people uncomfortable, it's going to maybe require, it's going to bring up identity stuff, like, that's what I'm talking about here. That's, that's where I think the habits and practices really, really come into play.
0: And going back to one of the habits about uh, the right to comfort, you've used yeah. the term white supremacy in your work, which hasn't always landed comfortably for white students and leaders that are, are uh, participating in, in your your workshops, yet you've determined not to soften your language, which I think is actually... I think it's important for us, especially those, uh, you know, as a white woman myself who has in the past been trying to sort of gently walk around this conversation of racism. And then I just realized, you know what, in order for me to get past uh, the tokenism aspect of addressing racism, I need to be able to talk about it as it is. So right. you've made a determination not to soften the language, and I'm just wondering why. Why you've really you've just walked right into it and been and been very determined not to. It, why, from your perspective, why is that important?
1: Yeah, I do. I have a lot of um, students and funders and colleagues that are like, "Can we use another term?" And my response is no. <laughs> and then here's why. It is what it um, is. And first, I want to say, you know, Robin D'Angelo wrote a really great piece on this that was literally titled "No, I Won't Stop Saying White Supremacy." So again, lots of other people out there having these conversations. Um, but I, I use the term on purpose. I use it often, and I often ask people to to kind of sit with the term for a moment, and first consider what, if anything, feels helpful about this term, and then what, if anything, is feeling uncomfortable or unhelpful about this term. And that, in itself, is a really useful conversation because when people really unpack that, you know, some of the things that students have said or leaders have said is, you know. When I say and and have to look at white supremacy, I can't I can't start othering people like and distancing myself and saying, oh, white supremacy. That's those people. That's somebody who's doing you know um, harm on purpose. When we take white supremacy to the place of smog, like lowercase s smog lowercase WS, white supremacy, it's all of that stuff that we've just been talking about, it's all those habits, it's all that institutionalized racial superiority, um, It that is, that's that's modern oppression, that's what it is. We need to talk about modern oppression, and in order to talk about white uh, modern oppression, we have to be able to get comfortable with the discomfort
0: of white supremacy and talking about it. Mm-hmm. And and you uh, also spend time in your work in your workshops, really getting to ways in which to address these these habits that we were referring to earlier. So there's so much that we have to deal with today to fully heal as a country, and I think it's important for us to. Uh, and maybe today we can sort of give a little bit of. I'd love for you to uh, talk a little bit about you know what is it we can do, and in particular. You know, white leaders, women in nonprofit, uh, but all white leaders in nonprofit in particular, what kind of habits should we be focusing on trying to interrupt or disrupt? And, and what are some ha- antidotes to those habits that you've heard people share? And, and maybe what's working, but just giving people an opportunity to be thinking about how to take action themselves regarding these habits that probably are so subtle that we don't even know they exist. Uh, until they're yeah. actually revealed, right?
1: Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I would say first that that work of Tima Ocon, and DR Works, not only do they list habits, but they list antidotes. So I would definitely check that out. So, for example, perfectionism, which is such a big one in white-dominant culture. The antidotes are things like, um, you know, start celebrating and talking about failure, um, you know, in your debriefs or, you know, Uh, start to create more of a culture of appreciation, spend more time focusing on people's strengths. Um, You know, there's all sorts of antidotes, and um, so I would go in there, and I would look more closely at that. Um, You know, I also want to say that, like, I've been very privileged to learn from and with a lot of women of color doing social justice and racial justice work, so I want to name some of them now because they're doing amazing Daniel Tatum, Robin DeAngelo, the white woman, doing some really good work here, Tima Okan, um, another white woman doing great work. So I first say, like, educate yourself, that's what I do, like, educate yourself about internalized racism and sexism and how it might be playing out um, in your work, in your organization, and in your relationships. Um, And and start to kind of excavate and do a little reflection on like what is the story of your smog, yourself and for your organization and even in your movements, you know, if you're, if you're a leader in a movement and how have you benefited from that smog and how has it caused harm, what habits do you need to interrupt, what might be the antidotes. Um, I'd also say, you know, start to learn more about gatekeeping, that gatekeeping concept and how to open gates and not close them um, or even when is it time to step away from being a gatekeeper, uh, gatekeeper altogether, so, you know, that's people's institute work for sure, and I think they're a lovely resource. Um, but you know, in order to do all of that, and I wanna go back to the, um, the right to comfort thing. Like all of this is deeply uncomfortable, and we have to be okay with that. And so in order to step into that discomfort, I need to connect to my core as a leader. Like what are my strengths? What are my talents? What's my purpose? What are my values? Um, who do I go to to learn from and with? Um, who, uh, who are my people? who are my ancestors? Like, all that stuff is going to help me to disconnect from my whiteness, from my smog, all of that stuff that I'm breathing in, you know, and um, I think that's really important work for for all of us to be doing. And then finally, I'd say we're accountable to other women of color in particular, um, and that's who I'm accountable to, and I, so I would say spend some time Figuring out like who are you accountable to, and what are they asking for, and what are they needing. I know women of color that I work with say, amplify our voice, amplify our voices. Check in with me to see if you need to step back or to the side or away completely. Support our leadership. Um, You know, don't downplay race, don't trivialize, um, don't do all lives matter. Acknowledge when you make mistakes and missteps. Stay open, keep learning name racism and sexism when it happens, Interruptive those microaggressions. Like, those are some of the things that I've gotten from my colleagues of color. So I think that accountability piece is something that, um, you know, that that we often uh, forget in our own self, self-awareness self journey. Um, I'm not doing it just for me. I'm actually doing it for the liberation of all of us, including myself.
0: Oh, well, that's a great way for us to end it. Thank you so much, Michelle. I think that... If anything, the just being able to, to name these habits and uh, again, in particular, not shying away from understanding that it's, we have to go beyond the tokenism idea of racial equity in organizations. And given the fact that there are so many uh, women, in particular white women, that are in leadership within nonprofits, it, it's, it's almost an imperative for us to really do that self reflection that you were talking about and to understand our own role that we're contributing to the harm of uh, individuals of color. Because that's really, if we're talking about change happening in organizations, while it might sound trite to say it starts at the top, it's very true. Uh, you know, in terms of, of senior management and executive leadership, to really understand our role that we play in perpetuating. Uh, these racist habits that are only further keeping individuals who are of color advancing and becoming uh, more whole recognized individuals in our communities, which I think that's, it's going beyond nonprofits, right? It's going deep into our communities. So thank you for the work that you do. Appreciate it. And I know that you have a lot of people that you lean on uh, and, and follow, but, uh, you know, in particular for yourself to take this on. I think it's, it's a wonderful thing. So thank you for well, being with you. us today.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thank you.
0: <laughs> um, and for those of you who are listening, you'll be able to, to get this recording on T- TPA Voices podcast on our website. Just go to the slash insights. And if you want to learn more about Michelle and her work, just go to her website at Michelle. Gisleson.com, and you spell her last name g-i-s-l-a-s-o-n and we'll also have a link to both her site and her book on our website so thank you all again for listening